Scripture says, as we have read, as for man, his days are like grass. He flourishes like a flower in the field, and the wind passes over it, and it's gone. We think we've got all these years to live, but in light of eternity, the psalmist just equates us with grass. We know how frail we are, and we know how fickle we can be, yet it is the Lord's will that that he uses us in this fantastic way. He says, uh, into these clay jars I have poured this great treasure, and that is the gospel of Christ and the chance to declare it and to present it with what we say and with how we live. And the Lord will use even the likes of us. Now I'm going to read from uh, the Psalms again and, and just to see, what, to see what extent the Lord will go and what insignificant things, and you'll see a little bit later in the service what I'm talking about, but what insignificant things the Lord will use to declare his majesty. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth, who has displayed thy splendor above the heavens. From the mouth of infants and nursing babes you have established strength because of your adversaries to make the enemy and the revengeful cease. Now, the enemies of God are basically Satan, the things of Satan. We don't fight against flesh and blood, the principalities of the air, things like that. But the Lord is so strong. The Lord's power is so dominant over all things that even the things of Satan might be quelled with what? From the mouth of infants and nursing babes, your strength is established. These things make the enemy and the revengeful cease. That is the extent of our Father's power and of his love for us. So let's pray. Lord, your steadfast love has no beginning and no end, and it is extended even to the likes of us. We who do not deserve it, we who cannot earn it, yet your love is made real to us through the work of your Son, Jesus the Christ, through the power of the Holy Spirit, and into our hearts. We who were once far off are now brought close. We who were without a name, we who were without a hope, have received the name of your Son, Jesus the Christ. We have received an inheritance. We have been adopted as sons. And now, Lord, we see a future and a hope, the things that you call us to, the things that you lay before us. Lord, we pray that we might walk in obedience to them. We see your great power manifest in us. The greatest miracle in each of our lives has been this salvation. We who were your enemies, yet you have called us friend now. You have drawn us unto yourself. You have put within us your grace and mercy. You have put within us this love that comes only from you. And you've not put it within us so that we may hoard it and hold on to it ourselves. You have loved us so that we might love another. So that we might give this love away to those who are around us. Lord, your strength and your power is such 
that it does not need to be manifest in great and powerful ways. You are willing and, and certainly capable of using even the most powerless of us, even the smallest among us. From the mouth of infants and nursing babes, you have established your strength. It is here in these lives that your mercy is also demonstrated, as is your power and grace. So, Lord, you have called us here today that we might sing of the things of your mercy and grace, that we might pray to you, that we might read your word, that we might hear your word, Lord, that we might worship you. For so many of us, Lord, we have seen that grace in our own lives. But you have called us here today that we might hear it, that we might know it, that we might read within your word how it is that you call us now to live. Lord, there are those around us whose lives have been touched with tragedy, with suffering, whose bodies are infirmed in some fashion or another, Lord, families who are in the midst of struggle for whatever reason. We ask that your mercy would come upon them, Lord. Those whose hearts and minds need clarity and insight need to be turned away from themselves and onto the things of truth, turned away from what clouds them and and that their eyes would be clear to what you have for them, to your mercies and your grace and the strength that is available in Christ. Bring healing to lives, Lord. Bring wholeness to those who are broken, I pray, that they might experience this through Jesus Christ. And Lord, we come to you not on our own effort, but relying totally upon Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. So we share together the prayer he taught us as we say, Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts, as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. It is God's glory we are called to live in and to walk in and to pursue. So I ask the ushers come forward at this time that we might give of what the Lord has blessed us with and demonstrate and work towards his glory and kingdom.
Lord, you have established your throne in heaven, and your kingdom is for all eternity, and you have placed your Son there to rule over. Lord, we pray that we are mindful of this, mindful of this calling on our lives to live in obedience to you, to walk humbly before you, and Lord, the joy that comes with this changed heart in Jesus Christ, that we might be afraid of nothing in this world and seek to serve you in all that we do. Lord, bring your hand of blessing upon these gifts and offerings, that we would use them wisely, use them for these purposes, the things of the kingdom, and that, Lord, that you would be seen in their use. We ask in Christ's name. Amen. Please be seated. Acts 23 this morning. Acts chapter 23. 
If you're able, will you stand with me and I'll read the word of God today. Lord, you provide for us so much in this world. You provide for us gifts and abilities and talents. And Lord, you call us to use them to the greatest extent possible. You order this world and you order our lives in ways that we don't always recognize or see, but for an end and for a purpose, and that is for your glory and for your purposes. So we pray today, Lord, that we might see this and understand this, that through the power of your Spirit you would reveal to us your word, not just these words written on this page, but make them real to our hearts, real to our minds. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Acts 23, really our passage is uh, from 12 and on, but uh, 11 is such an important verse we can't let it go. So we'll start in verse 11 of Acts 23 and read to the end of the chapter. But on the night immediately following, the Lord stood at his side, this is Paul's side, and said, Take courage, for as you have solemnly witnessed to my cause at Jerusalem, so you must witness at Rome also. And when it was day, the Jews formed a conspiracy and bound themselves under an oath, saying they would neither eat nor drink until they had killed Paul. This, uh, this is not the first time this kind of thing has happened. I mean, Paul is, uh, you know, if, in the Jewish world, you would see Paul's face at the post office, okay? They wanted him dead. They wanted him dead. So this group has bound themselves together to that end. And 13, and there were more than 40 who formed this plot. When they came to the chief priests and the elders and said, We have bound ourselves under a solemn oath to taste nothing until we have killed Paul. Now therefore you and the council notify the commander to bring him down to you as though you were going to determine his case by a more thorough investigation. And we, for our part, are ready to slay him before he comes near the place." But the son of Paul's sister heard of their ambush, and he came and entered the barracks and told Paul. And Paul called one of the centurions to him and said, Lead this young man to the commander, for he has something to report to him. So he took him and led him to the commander and said, Paul the prisoner called me to him and asked me to lead this young man to you since he has something to tell you. And the commander took him by the hand and, stepping aside, began to inquire of him privately, What is it that you have to report to me? And he said, the Jews have agreed to ask you to bring Paul down tomorrow to the council as though they were going to inquire somewhat more thoroughly about him. So do not listen to them, for more than 40 of them are lying in wait for him who have bound themselves under a curse not to eat or drink until they slay him. And now they are ready and waiting for the promise from you. Therefore the commander let the young man go, instructing him, tell no one that you have notified me of these things. And he called to him two of the centurions and said, Get two hundred soldiers ready by the third hour of the night to proceed to Caesarea with seventy horsemen and two hundred spearmen. They were also to provide mounts to to put Paul on and bring him safely to Felix, the governor. And he wrote a letter having this form. Now, this letter is kind of self-serving for the leader of the soldiers, but it kind of makes him look good, but it also gives him the facts about Paul. Claudius Lysias to the most excellent governor Felix. Greetings. When this man was arrested by the Jews and was about to be slain by them, I came upon them with the troops and rescued him, having learned that he was a Roman soldier, Roman citizen. 
And wanting to ascertain the charge for which they were accusing him, I brought him down to their council, and I found him to be accused over questions about their law, but under no accusation deserving death or imprisonment. When I was informed that there would be a plot against the man, I sent him to you at once, also instructing his accusers to bring charges against him before you. So the soldiers, in accordance with their orders, took Paul and brought him by night to Antipatris. But the next day, leaving the horsemen to go on with him, they returned to the barracks. And when these had come to Caesarea and delivered the letter to the governor, they also presented Paul to him. And when he had read it, he asked from what province he was. And when he learned that he was from Cilicia, he said, I will give you a hearing after your accusers arrive also, giving orders for him to be kept in Herod's praetorium. This is God's inspired word for us today. So please be seated. Now, the passage today contains no real uh, great doctrine, no great uh, insight. Um, uh, You know, if you were going to, I guess, uh, if we really worked it, we could come up with a a good three-point sermon uh, or maybe even an 11-point sermon, something like that, which which you could walk away with. But really, this is more of a moment in history. This is one of those bridges that continues the purposes of God and basically gets Paul from Jerusalem to Caesarea where he will stand before Felix and give his account. He will testify to the things of Christ. Now Felix was a former slave who had been freed by uh, the mother of the emperor Claudius and then put as the kind of uh, ruler at that point. So Felix is kind of a hard guy, somewhat suspicious, but Paul is going to go there. He's going to give his testimony there. That will be in the next chapter. And then we see this is a vehicle to get him to Rome. Because as we looked at verse 11, Take courage, for you have solemnly witnessed to my cause at Jerusalem, so you must witness at Rome. That is a definite word there. You must, you have to, there is no other way about it. Paul, you are going to Rome. Now, there is this little issue with these people who want to kill Paul. So you have the men who want to kill Paul, and you have God who says he's going to Rome. Who do you think is going to win? I'm pretty sure it's going to be God, uh, that Paul will go to Rome. But there is an, an overarching theme here in this passage, uh, and that is the theme of providence. Providence is not something that is taught in Scripture. The word providence, I'm sorry, the word providence does not appear in Scripture. It is taught both explicitly and implicitly throughout Scripture. And this is one of those places that seemingly unimportant events all come together to ensure God's purposes and God's plan. So uh, we're going to cover this passage pretty quickly, but then we're going to deal just briefly because, you know, there are thousands of pages written on providence. We're going to deal very briefly with an understanding of providence and what that means today in our lives, okay? So God declares Paul is going to Rome, and then there are these, there's at least 40 of these people, uh, Jews uh, formed a conspiracy, verse 12. These are the zealots. Okay, the zealots are a kind of a secretive Jewish society uh, that does the dirty work uh, uh, to further their purposes. And most of their dirty work is aimed at the Romans because they want to overthrow the Romans. And they are not above killing anybody that will serve that purpose. 
Zets were zealots. I mean, they really fit their name. And remember that the zealots, in, in, in just a couple of years from the time of this passage, uh, were to kill the uh, chief priest, Ananias, uh, because they felt he was too pro-Roman. And so they were very nasty people. And look at verse 14. They came to the chief priest and the elders and said, We have bound ourselves under a solemn oath to taste nothing until we have killed Paul. Now, there's evidence in, in places of, uh, throughout Scripture of these types of oaths. Remember, um, was it, um, I, should, I shouldn't go there unless I can remember it. It was uh, Jezebel, who's, uh, or, or, or the, the, the Jezebel's henchmen who said, we're not going to eat or drink until Elijah's dead, okay? And they didn't kill him, so hopefully they starved. Um, the same type of thing here. They're not going to get Paul. Um, so how serious were they about their vow? Well, let me tell you, that this is the, the literal Greek, and sometimes uh, we don't translate stuff literally because it's just too hard to understand. This is the 14. We have anathematized ourselves with an anathema to taste nothing until we have killed Paul. Okay? This is... This is uh, 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 more than, you know, on the stack of Bibles, on your mother's grave, uh, blood oath or anything. This is it. I mean, these people are serious about this. And they are all in to kill Paul. This is what they are living for at this moment. And, and how long are you going to not taste something? Mm. Uh, beef, you know, you've got three days, basically, I think, without drinking, um, but you're skill and your power and everything begin to decrease so they've got about a day or day and a half to kill Paul if they don't do it according to their own vow they are done okay but they knew that killing Paul while he was under Roman protection would mean that some maybe even all would die in the effort they were good with that that is the degree of their zealousness for their cause now it just so happens Okay, and we know these things happen just, just by chance, by random events. You know, Paul was lucky here, wasn't he? Yeah, Paul was lucky. It just so happened that his nephew gets wind of what is going on. His nephew gets wind, and he tells Paul, who sends him to the commander, who is willing to listen to this boy. Now, uh, there's just a question. There's never been any mention of Paul's family before this. Uh, why not? Two reasons. One, it's not been theologically important. It is not important about anything about Paul's family until this point in time. The second reason, Paul was a Pharisee who was the son of a Pharisee. He comes face to face with Jesus Christ. His life is forever changed. Now, this is the fulfillment of all that he had hoped, but according to the other Pharisees, according to his family, he has abandoned them and turned their back on him. So they probably have disinherited him. Uh, there was probably a, a family um, uh, a plan to not speak to him again. They may have even had a burial service for him and declared him to be dead. But of course, his conversion was 25 or 30 years previously. So perhaps over the period of time, he has begun to work his way back into his family and communicate the things of the gospel to them so that perhaps his sister and his nephew, uh, maybe others, have come to Christ and come to believe. We don't know these things. I'm just trying to, to, to hypothesize here about how it is that suddenly Paul's family is mentioned and they're so concerned about their safety, about his safety here. 
So along comes the nephew who overhears the plot on Paul's life, and the centurion takes him by the hand. This gives us the impression that the, the, the nephew was quite young, still a small child. And if you remember what we read in Psalm 8, Lord uses whatever means he declares are necessary and appropriate to further his purposes, even out of the mouths of infants and nursing babes. So the tribune calls together all of these soldiers. Um, where are we here? Um, verse 23. And he called to him two of the centurions and said, Get 200 soldiers ready by the third hour of the night to proceed to Caesarea. 70 horsemen and 200 spearmen. That's 470 soldiers. The total Roman garrison in Jerusalem was 600 soldiers at that time. So 470 out of 600 soldiers are going to take Paul and get him to Caesarea. And and what's it say here? They were also to provide 24 mounts to Paul, mounts to put Paul on and bring him to safety. Paul only needs one horse unless they're also going to include all of his books and his parchments and belongings as well. You see, in the Lord's perfect plan, he is using the world to get Paul where he wants him to be. And he is going to protect him with 470 Roman soldiers to make sure that he gets where he wants him to be. Okay? This is not luck. This is not fate. This is not something that simply just happens. This is God's providence. He said, you're going to Rome and I'm going to get you there. Now he doesn't say, doesn't tell Paul how he's going to get him there. And Paul just kind of leaves it to God to work out, apparently. Nor does he tell him all the things that he is going to face on the road to Rome. You know, stonings, more stonings, more beatings, probably shipwrecks, snakes, all these kind of things Paul is going to face. But he's going to get to Rome, he's going to get to Rome alive, and he's going to declare the things of Christ in Rome. Now remember, God has used various things throughout history that seem kind of strange, kind of weak kind of unimportant to further his will, to communicate to us. Uh, now, it was kind of, kind of out of the norm that, that there was this bush that burned that never was consumed. Uh, but it's, why would God come in a bush? Okay? Don't you think he'd manifest himself in some bigger way to communicate who he was? No, just a bush that's burning. There was that young boy who showed up with some food for his brothers, and the whole army is afraid of this one giant guy. So this young shepherd boy takes his sling and five stones and goes up and kills the guy, you know, David, using a young boy to save an entire nation. There was a guy who grabbed the jawbone of a donkey and beat the stuffing out of the Philistines or whoever, you know. Some, what apparently looks to be unimportant things, saves nations saves nations. Let's flip over briefly to 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Because this is nothing new, and this kind of opens the door for us into this theme of God's providence and how this plays out in the fulfillment of his plan and how he uses all things to bring his plan to uh, fulfillment, to conclusion. And what this means in our lives, uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 1, look at verse 26. 
says, For consider your calling, brethren, that there were not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble, but God has chosen the foolish things of the world to shame the wise, and God has chosen the weak things of the world to shame the things which are strong, and the base things of the world, and the despised. God has chosen the things that are not, that he might nullify the things that are. Why choose the weakest? Now, I, now I want you to know, I'm the most humble person you're going to you're going to find, okay? So uh, why choose the weakest and the most ignoble and the most foolish things to declare the greatness of our Heavenly Father? Why? Why choose that so no man should be able to boast? We see again and again God uses people that the world rejects. You don't have the skills. You don't have the abilities. You're not smart enough. You're not sharp enough. Um, but if you want to go and spread the gospel, that's your business. Go ahead. And they do, and they do great things. Why? Because they know they have no ability in and of themselves to achieve the things the, lay, the Lord lays before them. It has to be God working through it. I was at Presbytery this weekend. There was an examination, and one of the questions to these two pastors who were coming in, how are you able to do this ministry? What special gifts do you have? What great abilities do you have? It was a, a question really designed for a purpose. And they both stood up and said, I've got nothing. Okay, yeah, I've been to school and I've done this and that, but I have nothing that gets me to where the Lord wants me to go except the Lord. Okay? Oh, I can tell stories and I can make people laugh and cry, but that doesn't do anything. It's when the Lord works in my life through the proclamation of the word of God and the Holy Spirit acts, then lives are changed. He says, I can't change anybody's life. It's the Lord who does that work. Okay, And he uses the foolish things and the base things to achieve that because we've got to know that we're weak before he will make us strong. All right, providence. Providence. There's probably no point at which the Christian doctrine of God comes into more conflict with society and the worldviews than the things of providence. Because we hate the fact that somebody else is in control. Okay, somebody else is in control. Let me read from the Westminster Confession on Providence. God, the great creator of all things, doth uphold, direct, dispose, and govern all creatures, actions, and things from the greatest even to the least, by his most wise and holy providence, according to his infallible foreknowledge and the free and immutable counsel of his own will, to the praise of the glory of his wisdom, power, justice, goodness, and mercy. Now you think, okay, well, that's, that's cool. It's written by a bunch of men in the 1640s. There are probably 20 scripture references that support those statements concerning the providence of God. And that's just a summation. That is just a summation. As I said, the word providence doesn't occur in the Bible, but the doctrine of providence is illustrated again and again throughout many portions of Scripture. We see the book of Esther. What is missing in the book of Esther? What, what name is missing in the book of Esther? God's name. Okay? What doctrine is written across the entire book of Esther? Doctrine of providence. Okay? Again and again, we see here are the things that man wants to do, here are the things that God wants to do. And sometimes he will use men and their evil desires to achieve exactly what he wants done 
in the world. He will save his people. His sovereign will will be exercised, and even though he's not the author of evil, he's not responsible for it, he will use it to achieve his purposes. Ephesians 1.11, the purposes of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. All things according to the counsel of his will. Not all things relative to what we want, all things according to what he wants. And there is no evil person, no evil act that changes or thwarts God's sovereign will. John Calvin put it this way. Providence means not that by which God idly observes from heaven what takes place on earth, but that by which as keeper of the keys he governs all things. He governs all things. Remember, some of our founding fathers were deists. The deists, uh, example like, like Thomas Jefferson, they thought there was a deity and he got the world started and then he stepped back and watched everything go on. That's why um, there's an addition. In, in the original draft of the Declaration of, of Independence, providence is not mentioned. But the Congress at that time included uh, a phrase basically that says, and the works of God's providence in establishing this nation. Okay? Because there were believers there who said, uh, no, this is God's hand of providence. And you read those early writings, the early uh, founding fathers, it, they're just littered with talk of God's providence in the formation of this nation, as an example. Okay? So he doesn't sit by and go, oh, man, look at those stupid people. I can't believe they're doing that. Oh, you know, I would have done something different. He doesn't do that. He is actively involved in all things and governing all things. As Calvin says, the keeper of the keys. The keeper of the keys. Hebrews 1 tells us that Christ upholds all things by the word of his power. The word uphold here in the Greek means to carry, to bear, to provide for. Not to simply keep going what is already in gear, but to purposely direct to purposely direct and control all things. So God is not a passenger on this ship. He is the driver. He is the builder of the ship. He powers the ship. He is the determiner of all things. Now, God governs all things, even in what we might call random events. Proverbs chapter 16 says, God is ordering things even in the casting of lots. Okay, we think, oh, that's just a chance. No, it's not. No, it's not. Also, God causes things to happen where his creatures play a role you go out in the backyard you plant a plant you put a seed in the ground you water and you fertilize it but scripture says who causes the growth it is God who causes it to grow it was not an accident that brought Rebecca to the well that she could meet the servant that she could be the spouse of Abraham's son it wasn't luck that caused Pharaoh's daughter to go down to the river and pull out Moses floating by. It wasn't luck that directed the millstone to crush Abimelech's head in Judges 9. It wasn't luck that the random arrow that was shot into the sky in 1 Kings 22 pierced the single joint in the king's armor that caused his death. B.B. Warfield says this, Every historical event is to be treated as an item in the orderly carrying out of an underlying divine purpose. And the historian is continually aware of the presence in history of him who gives even to the lightning a charge to strike the mark. Well, where should this lightning bolt land? 
oh, by chance, it happened to land on that guy carrying the one iron out on the golf course, right? No, no, no. Job chapter 36 is very clear. God tells the lightning where to go. God also governs human affairs. Now just run through these quickly. He determines the time, existence, and boundaries of nations from Acts 17. He sets up rulers, takes them down again from Daniel, from Psalms. He governs every aspect of our lives, Jeremiah, Proverbs, including the number of days that we will live, Psalm 139. He is even sovereign over evil, although he is not tainted by it in any way, nor responsible for it, Genesis 50, Acts 2, 1 John. And you say, well, Randy, there are perfect perfectly human explanations for the, for almost everything and you're throwing it all on the go, all on the god and saying well it's his fault it's his business john flavel says the providence of god is like reading hebrew you have to do it from right to left okay hebrew we read left to right it's like beginning to end hebrews reading right to left So when you look back at events in your life, it is then that you see the hand of providence within them. You know, when you're in the midst of struggle, when when life seems to be pouring down and you you go say, I don't see any purpose in this. But a year or two or ten years later, you look back and say, this is what the Lord was doing. Now I can see his hand in these things. Now I can see how he was shaping me, preparing me, doing all these things to demonstrate his purposes. The best example perhaps in this uh, to illustrate this from scripture is the life of Joseph. Okay? Now I'm just going to cruise over the high points of the life of Joseph because it begins in chapter 37 of Genesis and ends in chapter 50. It begins when he is 17 and ends when he is 110. So we're not going to cover his whole life, okay? Now, whether it was exuberance or whether it was pride, we don't know, but Joseph is given these dreams, and he goes to his brothers, and he tells him about the dreams. And the dreams were basically saying, you all will bow down to me. Well, as the little brother, that didn't go over very well. So we see that they they get angry, they begin to scheme, uh, they take him out. Uh, they take that coat that, that his dad had given him and stain it with blood and give it to his father saying, the wild animals have eaten your favorite son, when in reality they were going to kill him. Judah intervenes and says, let's not kill him, let's sell him off to this Midianite uh, caravan. So they do that, he ends up in the house of Potiphar as a slave. The Lord blesses him, Genesis is very clear in, in, in uh in 30, 39, the Lord was with Joseph, and Joseph became a successful man. Okay? So the Lord has ordered these random events to get him into a place where he might bless him and become successful. Potiphar's wife takes a fancy to Joseph. Joseph doesn't want to have anything to do to, with her, so she makes an accusation. Now, this is an aside. Potiphar probably did not believe his wife because Joseph should have been killed if that was really what happened, if really he had attacked Potiphar's wife. So he just puts him into jail, basically. While he is in prison, now, do you think this is God's providence? You know, you bless me, I'm up, I'm down, I'm up and down. Yes, he's got some place for Joseph to go. While he is there, he interprets the dream of the cupbearer and of the baker. One gets killed, one gets restored. After that 
restoration, there's still two years Joseph spends in prison, waiting for the moment where Pharaoh would call him and say, interpret this dream. And we know what happens. He interprets that dream. There's going to be seven years of of, uh, blessing, seven years of famine. Let's stock up. So Joseph, who was just a kid, sold into slavery, uh, was a slave, was in charge of everything in Potiphar's house, basically, and then was thrown in jail for years. Now he is the second man only to Pharaoh in Egypt, and he is in charge of stockpiling everything in these seven years of blessing. But that's not the real reason he's there. He is there to save his brothers whom wanted to kill him, who sold him into slavery. Sounds like some guy in the New Testament. Right? He comes back and redeems those who sold him into slavery. I am your brother Joseph, whom you sold into Egypt. And now do not be distressed or angry with yourselves, because you sold me here. Don't think that you sold me here. It was God who sent me here to preserve your life. For the famine has been here for two years, and there are yet five more years. God sent me before you to preserve for you a remnant on earth and to keep you alive for your many survivors. So it was not you who sent me. It was God who sent me. How many years did it take for Joseph to come to that understanding? How many years did it take for him to get over his anger and hatred of his brothers who sold him into slavery. So he had a good life back there with his family. And now he's all by himself. But he comes to this conclusion and this realization. We started in chapter 37. This realization here is in chapter 45. God did this. It was God's hand directing all of these things. Why? So that I might preserve you. That you might be saved. And after the death of of uh, uh, Jacob, all the brothers think, well, now that dad's gone, maybe Joseph is going to turn his wrath upon us. Joseph makes it very clear. Fear not, for am I in the place of God? As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. God meant it for good. There had been a great evil in the hearts of the brothers, but God used that evil not only to save others, but even to save their own lives. J.I. Packer wrote, of the evils that infect God's word, moral, spiritual perversity, waste of good, physical disorders, it can summarily be said, God permits evil, Acts 14, he punishes evil, Psalm 81, he brings good out of evil, Genesis 50, he uses evil to test and discipline those whom he loves, Matthew 4, and one day he will redeem his people from the power and presence of evil altogether, Revelation 21, 22. Okay, So Jesus told Paul, he says, you're going to Rome. He didn't tell him it was going to take two years. He didn't tell him all the things that would happen along the way. He says, you're going to Rome, and you're going to declare the things of Christ in Rome. So friends, as we look at the doctrine of providence, again, we just touched upon it. But maybe you can see in your own life the circumstances that God has worked through that you never thought were his hand of guiding providence in your life, that you never thought he was using those events, whatever they were, to shape you and mold you and to prepare you for what he had down the road for you. What has he been doing in your life that you can now look back and see, 
Okay, that's the reason why. Okay, have you borne with patience the things that you have been through like Joseph? That you might come to an understanding and a realization of what the Lord is doing in your life. And it may take, like Flavel said, that you have to read it from right to left. You have to be removed from it and look back on it and go, Oh, man, I didn't see it then, but I can see it now. Let's pray. Lord, in your mercy and in your care and your love, you order these things in this world for your purposes that your will would be demonstrated, that your glory proclaimed. Help us to see your hand in our lives. We don't just throw our hands up and say it's fate or it's luck or it's happenstance. These things you are using and you have ordered them. What is it that you want us to learn? Is it patience like Joseph? Is it an understanding of your perfect will? Is it an understanding of your character? Is it a deep appreciation for how much you love us? Help us to see these things in our lives, Lord, and to see them as your hand of providence. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. I love your kingdom, Lord. Hymn number 545. Please stand and sing. send us out that we might be confident that we might know for sure that you are in control that there is not a molecule floating around in this universe that you do not see and know there is not a star that you do not know by name there's not a hair on our head that you have not counted and there is not a word that comes out of our lips that you have not known ahead of time and also that before the foundations of, the, of this earth you had chosen us in Christ Jesus Such is the extent of your love and your governing hand over all things. Send us out that we might walk in confidence and in peace and assurance, we ask in Christ's name. Amen.